0: Yeah. Right. our study is 1 Corinthians. And we're just kind of getting our teeth into it. But if you're making a notebook of 1 Corinthians, you know what would be on my front page? The nature of that church at Corinth. And here it is, I gave it to you. Uh, but this would be on my front page, right here. The church Paul wrote to here in 1 Corinthians is these three things. Uh, put it on the board that was probably the last time I am going to. But the the church that Paul wrote to, you have to keep in mind all the way through your study of First Corinthians. Because they were the church of God. They were God's possession. They were God's children. But boy, did they have problems. And so you can draw from that to any... Any of God's churches anywhere has problems. They're actually children in maturity. They're growing, they're developing, they're they're learning in a home situation, if you will. They're home with God. So the church that Paul wrote to was, first of all, a defiled church. It had sexual immorality that you'll read about as you get into the letter. Uh, they had drunkenness, worldliness, uh, to many degrees. That was the nature of the church that Paul wrote to. But yet he assured them in chapter 1 that they were the sanctified, the justified, uh, that they had all the blessing of God, and God would see them through their problems. That's a Father's job, isn't it? Uh, Number two, they were a divided church. <coughs> they had four parties competing for leadership and, and all of the bickering and arguing that must have went on as to who of these four groups are going to have supremacy in that little uh, in that town of Corinth. And Then there's the... Uh, uh, they were also, number three, in a general description of them. Uh, again, they were a disgraced church, 'Cause who's looking on? The world is. Who's looking on Benton City? The world is. Don't you know there's people driving by uh, every time we meet and sees us walking up the sidewalk? They know a lot of them know who we are, and a lot of them see for what we are and what we think of Christianity. And of course, the building and the grounds, of the grass and the bushes aren't they not some to some extent a a token of that tells people how much we think of the Lord's church. Now, we know that the building's not the church. We don't even need a building. But because we got one, uh, wouldn't it tell people around the community that those people are pretty dedicated to their God? Look how they take care of the building. Look how they take care of things. So that means a lot. But here's a disgraced church that he wrote to. And they in their... In all of their problems they had that the world sees, they were hindering the progress of the gospel. <clears throat> but God still loves them. They're still the church of God. They're still sanctified. They're still justified. God will see them through to the end, he promised. And they have all that he has has to give to them. He hasn't shortchanged them at all. They haven't. They're just not using it. Boy, and yet, and that's a big yet, see on the other side of the board there. That was the nature of the church Paul wrote to, and yet, it was a defended church. God, by His Word, through Paul's pen, in the first chapter and the first nine verses, uh, declared it to be a defended church. Just compare some of the highlights of what's said there in verse 4 through 9. They're recipients of God's grace. In other words, they're saved. They're rich in knowledge. You can have knowledge and not practice it. You know, God made Solomon the wisest man that ever lived or ever would live. But did he follow his knowledge, his wisdom? You go down to the bar down here and an old drunk sitting out there puking alongside the building, and he'll tell you right quick, this is not the way to go, son. Uh, you need to drop this habit. I have it, but you need to. He has wisdom, you see, but he's not following his own wisdom. So a man can have wisdom and knowledge and not follow it. And so here's a church that's rich in knowledge. They're They're lacking no gift of God. And I'm just telling you what the text said that we studied last week. And number four... Uh, they're to be blameless at judgment even though they got all these problems at the judgment they'll be blameless because they're not under law but under grace and they're in fellowship with Christ and that's what we learned in the first nine verses okay so if if your notebook was mine the very front page would have that Declaration on it in regard to the church that Paul wrote to. Because out here in the world, that's what you're going to see is what you see at Corinth. Why do you think God revealed this to us? All that He revealed is for our learning, particularly the Old Testament. Paul said in Romans 15 4, whatsoever things were written before time were written for our learning. And so when we look back, we see the people of God and how fickle they really were, are. They were and they are. They're fickle. And we see how that there's a a large circle, small circle, in regard to those who will be saved. There's those who are called, like Israel, but then there's a remnant that are faithful to God. And so it is today with the church. So we learn a lot from the Old Testament, and we learn a lot from Corinth because if you're wandering from church to church to church looking for the perfect church the only perfection it has is being in Christ being baptized into Christ and from there it begins a growth period, a maturing period so the little baby is born into the family by baptism then he begins to grow and develop and so be careful about Judging congregations. Now you can condemn what's wrong in them as Paul will with the Corinthians. He will condemn what's wrong with them. God's not happy with them, but they're his children and he loves them. And that's what Hebrews 12 says Whom the Lord loves, what does he do? He scourges and corrects, chastens every son that he receives. And the writer goes ahead and says, Now, if you're not willing to receive God's chastening and correcting and scolding, then you're you're out. you have having a hope. You can't expect to be saved. But if God's your Father and you listen to Him, uh, you can't go wrong. He'll be right with you all the way. And that's what the ninth verse of this first chapter said. God will see you through to the end. You have powers working for you on the other side of the curtain, on the stage of life that you don't even realize. You might know nebulously that there's powers back there working for you, angels who serve God and does His bidding, but still in all, you don't know the impact of all that they do. One thing they do is not allow you to be tempted above that which you're able to bear, but will with the temptation give you a way of escape. That's beautiful. And gives you a shield of faith. Faith comes by hearing the word and that shield is able to do what? Quench every fiery dart of the devil. Boy, that's astronomical isn't it? To know that God will see us through to the day of Christ. Because he's going to judge the world by Christ you know. That was Paul's message to the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17 about that God they ignorantly worshipped. What did he say? Verse 30 and 31. One time God went to ignorance of man, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? For he has appointed a day, a day on his calendar, in which he will judge this world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. Who is that? his son wherein here's about this man here's the identifying factor of him wherein he's given assurance unto all men and that he raised him from the dead is the resurrection assurance of God's choice and God's mode of salvation oh yeah you think the devil ever be able to destroy that oh no (laughs) he's given assurance and do you think uh, there'll be some men that won't know about it No, Paul said all men. The Lord, the God inspired him to put down there. He's given assurance to all men, and that assurance is the resurrection from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead and proofs there. It lays there just aching to be spelled out to ignorant people. And yet it's not priest on much. The church of our Lord doesn't touch it a whole lot. Because I think. Probably because in their nativity they don't understand all of it. They don't know the proofs that's there. Anyway So here we are We're going into the second point that Paul makes in that the local body is imperilled by division. Now look at this little note, this little section here that I put on the board. You see this title, The Nature of the Body, the Church of Corinth? We're going to study all 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians from that viewpoint. Because that's the viewpoint Paul preaches from. The nature, the character of the body at Corinth, the church. Now we've already seen, and I'll continue to develop this outline. But this is what we'll be studying all the way through our study of the 16 chapters here. The nature of the body. What about its nature? Well, it began with, in, in chapter 1, verse 1 through 9, what did we see last week? Empowered by God. God will see them through to the day of Christ. They're empowered. They're saved. They're delivered. They're sanctified. They're justified. They're purified. They have all that God has to offer Under the church, they're empowered by God. Now this evening, we're going into the second phase of our study about the nature of the body there. It was not only empowered by God, but what was it? Imperiled by division. And that begins verse 10, goes through verse 25, and that's where our study will be. So if you're making an outline, we'll just stick with me, and every week we'll, we'll add to this, but it'll all sum up to showing us different aspects of the nature of the body of Christ, the church of Corinth, and it'll stand as an example to the church in Benton City, the church in Richland, the church in Russia, the church in China, (coughs) the Lord's church in Africa, wherever it may be. That's why it was written. It's written for our learning. All right, now the second point that Paul makes is that the local body is imperiled by division. First, it is empowered by God, and second, it is imperiled by division. That's the only thing that can put the local body in peril. Now, these different sins that Paul has to write and correct here in this letter will not destroy the church. What will destroy the church is the first thing Paul went into, and that's division. That's what will destroy the church. If they hang together, they can argue together and come to have the same mind and the same judgment and all these things, and they can iron the difficulties out. But division is the killer. And so, Paul, so God, I should say, through Paul's pen, informs us that the main problem they had. It's, the first thing needs to be dealt with is division in a congregation we're not supposed to be divided from one another, we're brothers and sisters we're in a family and we all have our part to contribute and maybe your part's not as great as somebody else's part but it is a part and because of our love for one another we work with one another we work in harmony that's what God expected so first uh It's empowered by God. Second, it's imperial by division. That's the only thing that will put the local body imperial. A united body is never imperial, uh, never in danger. Mark that down. A united body. If you don't have that division there, you're not in danger at all. And that's chapter 1, verse 10 through 25, as you see on the outline. All right, false doctrine will never threaten a united church if it don't have division in it. If it's united together, false doctrine can be ironed out. False doctrine can be debated and worked out. But if it's united, they'll stick together because you're my brother. And sure, you've got a wrong idea here, but that can be corrected by the Word of God. You see the point? All right, so false doctrine will never threaten a united church. Immorality will never put it imperial uh, a united church. Will a united church be threatened by error? Oh, yeah. With immorality in them? Yeah. But it won't threaten them. It won't imperial them because they are one in heart and mind. They want to serve God. That's their intent. You want to serve God. I want to serve God. So you've got a strange idea. Because I love you, I try to work with you, with the Word of God to show you where you're wrong. And you work with me. And we'll work together. But if you get into that division part, I'm I'm of this guy, and to hell with the rest of you. Oh, well, I'm over here, and to hell with you guys. First thing you know, the church is dissolved right there. The devil's had his way. So the first problem that Paul deals with is the most significant problem they have that needs to be dealt with first, division. All right, so that's what we're seeing at the beginning of verse 10. And so that's why he started out talking about the church before he started talking about the pyril. Imperial by division. Now there's two points here. He talks about factors among Christians number two, he talks about the factor of the Christ. Okay, the factors of division, verse 10 through 17. And then the factor of the cross, uh, the cure of divisions, is verse 18 through 25. Now, under the factors among Christians is, first of all, a plea for unity. Look at verse 10. He's asking for unity. He's pleading with them. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by His authority, that all of you agree with one another so that there may not be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind. And so there's a lot in this one verse. First of all, that's love's appeal, isn't it? I, I, I beseech you, I behoove you. He's asking, he's appealing to them, and that's the way Romans twelve begins, isn't it? In view of the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. In view of what? The mercies of God. Not in view of the fact that Biden is president and tells you that you have to. It's in view of the mercies of God. Look at the mercies of God. Come comprehend the mercy of God and in view of that mercy and that love shouldn't you render yourself servants unto God alright so here's love's appeal it's not, love's, uh, uh, not laws commanded but it's love's appeal I beseech you <coughs> I appeal to you brothers and so the basis of this appeal is love's appeal and not laws uh, uh, laws condemned Commanded. Excuse me. Now, the appeal itself is not in his name, in Paul's name, but in Jesus' name. You notice that? And that's the way we make an appeal to somebody. It's not in our name. Who are we? Who are you? Who are you? So, you're a nobody. But if you're a son of God, you are somebody only in that respect. And so your appeal to other people is in the name or by the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul uses here. Uh, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See the text? And what he wanted uh, for them to agree with one another. Now you know as well as I know that that's uh, never going to be perfectly secure because Uh, we're always adding new people to the church and always learning new things. But we can agree with one another even if we don't necessarily dot every I like everybody else and cross every T. You can hammer out differences if you agree with one another. And so there's the plea for unity. Now, in agreeing with one another... What is the common denominator that causes us to want to agree with one another? It isn't because you're just marvelous. It isn't because you're such a good teacher or preacher or or you've got some good ideas or you're a, a, a recognized leader or what. That isn't what it is. Our binding together is because of right here. Let me tell you a true story. A friend of mine went to visit this old lady. She hadn't been to church in about a year. And he went to her. He he, he found out she wasn't coming. Uh, noticed she wasn't coming and he finally, he gave her time for her pity potty, you know. That's what you do with kids. You let them have their pity potty. But he went to her and he had tea with her. And he's sitting in the living room and uh, she's in making tea. And when they got to discuss, the discussion started He asked her, he said, Sister, how how come you don't come anymore? We miss you. And she said, Because this brother done this to me, and this sister said something like that to me, and it's just not a loving group up there, and I just ain't going to subject myself to it. Is that why we come? Is that why we gather? And you know what he was saying all the way through her arguments as to why she doesn't come? He kept saying, finally with tears in his eyes, the Lord didn't do that to you. Why are you taking it out on him? Why are you you taking it out on him? See, we don't come up here for one another. Now, we certainly enjoy one another and can uh, to the fullest extent. We can also have some problems with one another. But what binds us together is right here. Right here. That's the only thing that brought us together in the first place. And so, no wonder Paul said in Romans 12, "I beseech you, in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Not asking anything special of you, your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this age of man." But rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know what is the holy and acceptable way of God. A challenge to us out of love. All right, number two. So there's his plea for unity right there. We just discussed it. Verse 10 that they all speak the same things, be of the same mind, the same judgment. Now, when it comes to the doctrine. Of Christ. Can we all speak the same things? Can we be of the same mind, the same judgment? Didn't Paul say that in Ephesians 4, 4-6? through 6? There's one church. Can I say there's one church? Can I look a man right in the eye that believes that all churches are going to be saved, and can I tell him honestly, sincerely, and truthfully from God that there's only one church? I certainly can. And shouldn't I yeah, because if he lives in a deception, he's not going to it. That one church is one that's been baptized into Christ. They've been called out of this world and baptized into Christ. And so I can say there's one church. Can I say there's one doctrine? Absolutely. Well, I'm not going to push the matter, but we can say there's one hope of our calling. There's one Holy Spirit that called us by the Word. There's one Lord, one God. One hope of our calling. Well, you know the oneness of religion that Paul presents there. And so Paul asks these people, uh, I beseech you in view of the mercies of God to present you. No, that's not not it. Uh, Well, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you. And that you may be perfectly joined, and perfectly united in mind and spirit, and so on and so forth. So he's asking for unity. Now the second thing is uh, the presence of the factor faction. Uh, so Paul will make known that this is evident that it's amongst this the presence of it. Uh, Factions are present, although they are all agree with one another. He says, Some of the house of Chikoli has informed me that there is some quarreling among you. Of course, that's what division always brings about, is quarreling. The word quarrel is a little weak. Uh, factioning would be a better word there in that place. Factions makes uh, pieces rather than making peace. It cuts into pieces rather than making peace among the pieces. If you get, you can't make pieces without the I. I've got to get involved to make pieces. Ego has to get involved, in other words, and that's what happens. Man's ego gets in the way and causes division. Uh, And so he says uh, that there's quarrelings among you. The house of Kohli informed me that there is some quarrels among you. Now anytime you want to tell somebody that you've heard something about them, you're obligated to tell that person uh, uh, you heard it from. You're obligated. And so Paul does. It takes two to witness, to establish anything. That's in our courts. That's in our life. That's in our world. That's in our nature. It takes two. And so it's only natural that Paul in his letter would inform them as to where he got this information about them. Because he said, they wrote me and informed me about this. And so they immediately know Paul has got the facts. Because he'd been talking to the house of Coley. That lives there, that works there in that congregation. Uh, And he's not tattling on them, as it were, but Coley is, the house of Coley is letting Paul know out of love so that he can, as an apostle, can come there and straighten that thing out with a letter or with his personage. So don't get the wrong idea there. Uh, He says, There are some divisions among you there. What I mean is this some say, I follow Paul. Others, I follow Apollos. And yet others, I follow Cephas, and I follow Christ. Now, we have this problem today. We do. We've got to be wise enough to see it, pick it out, and and in love, uh, uh, dissolve it. And here's the dissolving aspect right here. We preach Christ. Christ. When we do, it's the dissolving factor. So we don't come up here because you're so purty and I'm so purty, and we just like one another. we got a we got a hell of a club going on. I mean, we just ooh, just jumping up and down, clapping our hands, and having a hell of a time. No, that ain't the reason we come up here. We come up here out of love for, and appreciation for the grace of God that saved our butt when it was wasn't worth saving. And until you see that, until you come to hate your life, you'll lose it. But if you hate your life, for Jesus' sake, He said, you'll find it. I have no use for my life. The only life I have is in Christ. The only hope I have is in Christ. The only incentive I have is in Christ. The only motivation to do anything is in Christ. And I look for the reward that He's promised me. I want to be there. And I sing the song, and I mean it. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. All right, so... Verse verse 12 and 13, in this section of factors that causes division, he talks about uh, perversion... (coughs) Liberty. Now, liberty is an wine, intoxicating wine. Liberty is very quickly perverted in the (coughs) license and in the judgmental character, and so quickly it so it so quickly happens. It happens sometimes without you knowing it. You still think you're defending your rights when you're actually defending your opinions. Have you ever caught yourself doing that? You get up an arm, the hair on the back of your neck raises up, and you're ready to fight to the death in argumentation over your... And then all of a sudden it dawns on you, I don't have any proof on that. I don't have God's Word that stamps and says, that's right. It's my opinion. I don't have a right to my opinion when it comes to a brother, do I? Can I preach my opinion? No, I don't have that right. Now, if it might channel him in the right way, I can say, well, this is my opinion about that. Uh, and there's a lot more to it than I know. But here's my opinion at the moment. And you have a choice of, of saying, well, that sounds pretty reasonable at the moment. I'll, I'll go that way. But we follow Christ, don't we? We don't follow one another. And here are these people following Paul and Paulus, Cephas and Christ. All well, right, verse... 12 and 13. He first of all makes a statement. Uh, I follow Paul. That's his first one. That's a perversion uh, of liberty. Do you have a person that you listen to and take advice from? Yeah. But you're not his disciple, you see. You're not his disciple. You're a disciple of Christ, not him. He might have led you to Christ. He might teach you about Christ, but he is not your—you're not his disciple. <laughs> these people have chosen out four men: Paul, Paulus, Cephas, and Christ, as though they were disciples of these men. And Paul's got some serious questions to ask them, because when he gets into his argument, he's going to say, "Is I was I crucified for you? Is that why you're following me? I'm merely a servant." And he will get on over in the. Uh, the, the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, and that's his discussion. Listen, we're, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Christ, we're just servants by which you heard the word and uh, came to your obedience. So don't make us out to be something. We're just servants. So we make them, uh, we make them and we don't have disciples, but we make them a disciple of ours. Jesus had them. And maybe the apostles can have disciples, but I can't have disciples because because uh, I'm a disciple myself. That's all I am. I'm a follower of Jesus. If I could help you, I will. But you don't follow me. I don't care how many letters of learning and all this influential things that a man might have. You don't follow men. You follow the Lord. You don't come to the assembly because uh, uh, because everybody loves you. And you don't quit coming because everybody hates you. You come for the Lord. My dad pointed that out to me when I was a boy. We traveled around quite a bit because he was a traveling uh, boomer welder and he'd work here a few months and over there on this pipeline and on this refinery as they were building it. And so we weren't there very long. But while we was there, we always went to church, went to services. And the brethren would get to sipping air when it come to doing anything like waiting on a table. Oh, man, they were so afraid that he's going to do something wrong. And they had their best suits on, three-breasted suits and polished shoes. Like, that was Christianity. I don't think the Lord carried a suitcase around with all his clothes. <laughs> he said, on one occasion, the pockets have holes. The birds have nests, but the Son of Man don't even have a place to lay his head. So I don't think he traveled around with spit-polished shoes and finest suits and all that I think he stood before people in his reality as what they recognized as a carpenter's son don't you Uh, anyway we was in a lot of congregations and I can tell you my father, the only thing that took him to services was the fellow right here that paid his price because my dad told me, he said, son, do you see in your naiveness, in your youth and everything, do you see that they never asked me to wait wait on the table? They never asked me to lead in prayer. They never asked me to do anything. And you know why? Because of their mindset that I don't dress correctly. Because my dad just dressed in khakis. He was a welder. I don't think he might have had a suit. I don't know at that time. I doubt it. I never seen him in one. But he said, "But that's not going to stop us from going." He said, "You notice how when the church, the elders, and the leaders of the congregations all at the back greeting people as they leave after the services." He said, "You notice, son, they've turned their back when I walk back there because they don't they don't want to even shake my hand." Yet I'm their brother, and they're mine. But you see, the ignorance there that goes on in a lot of places, but that should not stop you from attending the services and worshiping God Almighty. That's what I'm trying to say. So somebody don't like it, big deal. And that was that old lady's problem. Well, such such and such set this against me, and I didn't like it. And the... Uh, turned their nose up at me, and I didn't like that. I ain't going back. Well, the Lord didn't do that to you. Why are you taking it out on Him? He's the one who called you to the assembly. He's the one that called you into the grace and mercy of God. You, uh, well, you see the picture. I'm not going to labor it anymore. So, uh, if I'm a disciple, surely... I'd be pointing people to the one that I'm a disciple of, wouldn't I? If I follow Christ, I'm going to be pointing people to Christ because I'm His disciple. All right? So, who are they claiming to belong to when they say, I follow Paul? Well, Paul. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. Uh, I'm personally persuaded uh, that they no more followed Christ than a, than a goose. I think they're talking about the name of Jesus uh, and denominationalizing it is what they're doing. Well, don't mean anything to them at the moment. It will when God gets finished chastening and scourging whom he loves. And does he love the Corinthians with their problems? Yes, he does. You love a son even though you gotta bust his ass. <coughs> Put it blunt. You see problems in him that shouldn't be there, and you don't want them to develop little problems of rebellion against father's authority. Ooh, 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 that's a big one there. Boy, Heavy. That'll get your butt not only whooped, but kicked. <laughs> And so these dividers, they're making it the name of a sect as truly as the others were. Here's four divisions in the church that Paul mentioned. And you're going to see divisions in any church you work with, even if you start it yourself, probably primarily if you start it. And so there's going to be divisions in the church. The thing that's wrong is divisions of the church. Did you get did you pick up on the two changes of, of phraseology? There's going to be division in the church. The thing that's wrong is divisions of the church. There's the problem. We can work out divisions in the church, but once you have divisions of the church, then you've got splitting and bisecting, and uh, kind of like uh, Jonah built him a booth when he was, went to Nineveh and he called it the east side church of Jonah and he waited to see what would happen to Nineveh he had no love for him God tried to instill a little love but he went to Jonah and told him he said shouldn't I have compassion on these people I mean all of these souls they don't know their right hand from their left ignorant. But God's willing to work with them. God's willing to teach them. And so you've got an east side church, a west side church, and another side church, and I'm a, a right church, and you're a wrong church. And finally, you've got the local, the loyal church, and the more loyal church, and pretty soon you've got all these churches in a town that ought to have one with all of these divisions within it. You can have divisions within it, not just divisions of it. Keep the divisions within the body. That's lesson one. Now work on the divisions within the body, and that's lesson two. So you keep them in the body, and you work on them in the body. So the point is, uh, they've uh, perverted their liberty to have teachers and make them lords. That's what Paul is saying in verse 13. He says, I've got some questions for you. Is Christ divided? No. You can't divide Christ. You can't divide the church anyway. You really can't. The church is going to be the church because it follows Christ. And so if the church divides, Maybe the one you're following it calls itself a church, but it's not the church. Uh, you can't divide the church anyway. You can leave it, but you can't divide it. It stays one church. Uh, so Paul says, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so they perverted their liberty by making Paul their Lord. That's what they're done. That's so easy to do. Somebody says some things, and you read some guy, and he's really good, and all of a sudden, everything that guy says is right. You ever notice that about our nature? Well, he may have some right things to say, but he's not right about everything. But the Lord is. In reality, he's wrong too, but by different things in various degrees anybody you read at outside of this book called the Bible and if you talked about these men they are it's just their word uh, that in uh, words that inspired Peter was wrong I know of an occasion where Peter uh, was wrong uh, so they're following Paul and they're following Peter should they? They follow Christ. But yet Paul and Peter was inspired of God. But could they be wrong? Yeah, just because they were inspired didn't make them right in everything they'd done. And there was occasion you'll read about in Galatians 2 where Paul had to confront Peter and an apostle because he withdrew from the Gentiles in his ignorance and his fear of the Jews. And, well, I won't go into that, but Paul confronted him because he was wrong. Now he repented of it. But you don't put your trust in men even if their name is Paul or Paulus or Cephas. You don't do that. Because they're just men. These men that was inspired by God miraculously. Their word was inspired but not their actions necessarily. So be careful with that. Uh, because uh, <coughs> Paul went to Troas to preach. He had a great opportunity to preach and he went on Uh, That's Acts 16, if you want to read about it. Now, when you know to do good, and you have the opportunity to do good, and you do, uh, do it not, what's that? That's sin. And so we call him a sinner, because he was, Acts reveals that he went to Troas to preach, and he had a great opportunity to preach, and he went on. He missed that opportunity. Was that sin? Yeah, it was. That's the Apostle Paul. We already discussed Peter from Galatians 2nd chapter. Now, we see this in Paul in Acts 16. He said that he was the chief of sinners. Paul knew who he was, the chief sinners. Do you think that you do everything right and take, care, take opportunity to every uh, opportunity God sets before you? You're sinning. But God still loves you. You're still under grace, aren't you? You're not under law. All right, so Paul declared himself to be the chief of sinners. Paul says, I'm wrong. What I write is right. Uh, It's not his life that's inspired. It's his word that is inspired. And I hope we get a hold of that. So Paul here... In verse 13 is saying, "Look, uh, look until I have nails in my hands. Don't follow me, and until you're baptized in the name of Paul, don't follow me." That's what he's saying. But if he was seeking man's glory, wouldn't he have relished in that? And that's the way preachers and people do today. They're looking for some recognition some glory, and they'll step right in the face of Christ to get it. You that what Jim Jones done? The FBI had declared in their investigation of him that he started out in some town back in Missouri or wherever he was from. He started out preaching Christ the Lord. But it wasn't long the money came in from these wealthy people and these highly educated people that are dumber than a rock And the first thing you know, his audience began to build because he opened it up to drugs and sex and all of that. First thing you know, he's teaching Jim Jones as Lord. So Paul here in verse 13 says, Look, until I have nails in my hands, don't follow me. And until you're baptized in the name of Paul, don't follow me. Then he talked about the... uh, he talked about the uh, priority of his preaching in verse 14 through 17. Now here's his priority. As he talked about these factors of division, he, number one, pleaded for unity. That's verse 10. Number two, uh, in verse 11, he he spoke of the presence of these factions that was causing the, the division. And number three the perversions of liberty, verse 12 and 13, uh, as he spoke of parties and tests. And number four, now he talks about a priority of preaching, verse 14 through 17. Now, note in verse 10, the plea of doctrinal unity. The parties loyal to men in verse 11 through 13. The principle, uh, verse 13, is the oneness in Christ. In verse 14 through 17, uh, the priority is preaching the cross of Christ. He says in verse 14, "I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, who no one can say, so no one can say." That you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, and beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. He did not have a list in the back of his New Testament of all of the people that he baptized and where uh, baptized and where it happened. Did you know there's preachers that keeps a list? I never have, but there's preachers that do that. In fact, I I run into a lot of people all the time when I baptize, and they they say, "Well, don't you remember Merle?" <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> but you see, all this appeals to man's ego. Uh, all right. Uh, he just Paul just said Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now the verb in the verse in the Great Commission is make disciples, preach the gospel, baptize that guy. Now you can't do one without doing the other. These three things uh, uh, govern making disciples. That's what makes a disciple. You go make disciples by preaching the gospel and baptizing that guy. All right, so go and baptize and teach and fulfill the commission. Those are necessary in making disciples. But what did Christ send you to do? Well, Paul said, uh, did He send you to go? Uh, Did He send you to baptize? Did He send you to preach? No. He sent you to make disciples. That's what your job is. There's a difference. (coughs) And that's what Paul is saying here. I'm sent to preach. Now, when you preach, what happens? People get baptized. Disciples are made. And you teach them some, some more so that they can be baptized, baptizing disciples themselves. But the key verb is make disciples. Preach the gospel. And that's what Paul says my mission was to do. I'm nobody. I'm just a, a disciple of the Lord. And I make disciples. That's what Paul said. He's not downplaying baptism at all. Don't get that idea. Because he wrote the most about baptism. Romans 6, 3-6. Galatians 3, verse 26 and 27. And on and on and on we could go in Scripture where he, his emphasis on baptism. So he's not downplaying baptism. He's just saying, "I'm sure glad that I don't have any more influence and has already caused trouble here at Corinth because, you, because, you, because I baptized some of you, you think it's something great, I wouldn't crucify it for you. I was merely making a disciple out of you. Uh, so uh, Paul is, uh, he's not downplaying baptism. he's telling you what his mission is. What was he sent to do and what are you sent to do? He can't be downplaying baptism. Just read Galatians 3, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, and many other places. He's not downplaying baptism at all. Denominational people, uh, they preach this like they do. As if Paul is saying here, baptism is not important. That's the way the Baptists use that. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying what he is sent to do. Uh, did he baptize people? Yeah, he did. There's a, uh, at least five or six here that he baptized and he remembered. He said, and did I baptize anyone else? I can't remember because that's not my mission. What was his mission? Well, when the Lord gave those apostles the, the Spirit, what did he say it would do? It would guide them into all the truth so he said take that message and go into all the world and it'll guide men into the truth and it'll bring to your remembrance things that I taught you uh, so that was the mission of these men they were sent on a commission to go into the world and make disciples by preaching uh, I personally don't baptize very many people Paul's saying I let the one who led me to teach to these uh, to the bap- bap- do the baptizing It's not an important thing to do, the baptizing. And so we make disciples of the Lord rather than being the guru of them. It's not our job. Otherwise, you're no longer a disciple, but a servant. So number one is the factors of division. Number two is the factor of the cross, uh, starting in verse 18. The only thing that takes away division is the cross itself. That's the only thing. It's the only thing that can take away division. Now two points in regard to the factors of the cross. <coughs> Number one, the foolishness of preaching verse 18 through 21. And number two, the features of, uh, of preaching. Verse 22 through 25. Or the thing preached, in other words. <coughs> Our time's up. So let's begin there with uh, verse 18 through 25 next week. As Paul deals with the foolishness of preaching. And he's going to Name you and I as fools for Christ. Otherwise you're a fool of the world. Let's see, what's today? 28. What is it? 28. 28th.